I would invite you to stand as we hear from the Word of God in Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 8. Let us now give our attention to the reading and the hearing of God's holy and inspired Word. And it came to pass that on one of those days, as Jesus taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes came upon him with the elders. Jesus, and they spake unto him, saying, Tell us, by what authority dost thou do these things? Or who is he that gaveth thee this authority? Jesus answered and said unto them, I will also ask you one thing, and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? And they reasoned with themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then believed ye him not? But if we say of men, all the people will stone us, for they be persuaded that John was a prophet. And they answered that they could not tell whence it was. And Jesus said unto them, Neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. And this is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we do give thee thanks this morning for thy word. We ask that thou wouldst open our ears and open our hearts that we might receive it, that we might digest the scriptures, and that we as thy people might receive wonderful instruction from thy word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as we draw our attention to Luke chapter 20 this morning, we come to this place where we find Jesus at the end of his earthly ministry, just a few days, perhaps, away from his arraignment, his trial, his crucifixion and death. And we find Jesus again in conflict with religious leaders. We've seen that throughout the Gospel of Luke. But it's interesting, as we come here, the conflict intensifies. Now, in this whole section that we have been looking at, we have seen Christ enter Jerusalem. And according to Luke's gospel, it's a little different than what the other gospel writers record, but there's similar accounts. Jesus comes into the city, and the people welcome him. And the crowds rejoice and say, Blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. So this is a triumphant time. This is a a time of, of jubilation. 
as the king rides into the city of Jerusalem. But in the midst of all of that rejoicing and all of that giving of praise unto God and all of that wonderful celebration, there's something that changes in the midst of that. Because it's a sad commentary as we come to chapter 20 of what takes place. There's no other place in Luke's gospel other than chapter 19 where we see Christ identified as king. But now as he's identified as king, as the people begin to give him praise, as the people begin to give praise for the mighty works that they had seen done by the hands of Jesus, immediately there in verse 39, the Pharisees come and say, Master, rebuke thy disciples. Isn't that strange? Religious leaders come and say, be quiet, don't say any more. Well, Jesus started to rise, or Jesus in his ministry started to bring the religious leaders to great frustration. And here we see that scene unfolding here in chapter 19. But as we come to our account this morning, we find here the occasion for what takes place. We see those words, and it came to pass that on one of those days, one of those days in the life of Jesus, happened to come to pass that Jesus was there in the temple Notice what verse 1 of Luke says. This is striking. It doesn't say that Jesus was simply in the temple teaching. It says that he was in the temple preaching what? The gospel. Preaching the gospel to Jews. Preaching the gospel to these Jews who had come to the temple to observe the feasts of Israel. Jesus comes to preach the gospel. Oh, how often we fail to see the importance of the gospel in all of Scripture. I was for years a pastor in a church that believed we don't preach from the Old Testament. We are New Testament Christians. And so they saw no gospel in the Old Testament. They saw the prophecies, and yet here Jesus says he preached the gospel. Ironic that in spite of that growing hostility, Jesus still devoted himself to the public ministry, his prophetic ministry. And so we see here, and we'll learn this today and tonight as well, that we see Jesus in his threefold office, prophet, priest, and king. We see him here in his prophetic office, preaching the word of God. You go back to verse 47 of chapter 19. It says, he taught daily in the temple. Now, this is the last week of his earthly ministry. He's there in the temple, and he's preaching every day. 
He doesn't miss one day. He wants to make certain that while he is there in Jerusalem, before the end of his earthly life and ministry, that he takes the opportunity to preach the gospel daily. And it says there in verse 47, that as he taught daily in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the chief of the people sought to destroy him. And they could not find what they might do, for the people were attentive to all that Jesus was teaching. They could not find any grounds to destroy him. And so what happens here, they, they become more and more incensed. They become more and more angry. Who is this man who has come into our temple and who upsets our religious system? And so they look for a way to destroy him as he publicly proclaimed the word. So as we come to chapter 20, the occasion is still somewhat the same. Time has passed, as Luke records there. So this is not the same day as these events of chapter 19, but it's shortly thereafter. We find the scene changes. They seek to destroy him, but they know they can't, because here in this scene... You have the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders there in the outer courts of the temple. You see the people of Israel coming for the feast days in the outer temple. Remember that the outer temple was the place, or the outer court is the place where Jesus was teaching, where he was preaching. This is where all the Jews were allowed to come. And so the scene changes. They know that they can't destroy him because all the crowds are watching. You know, in our day, it seems like everyone knows what you're doing because there's cameras everywhere. In Jesus' day, they didn't have cameras. But the crowds were there. And they knew everything that was taking place. And so as he preached the gospel, they thought, we can't destroy Jesus. We can trick him. We can trap him. And so this is an entrapment on the part of these religious leaders. And so the text tells us that the chief priests, the scribes, came upon him with the elders. It's important to note here that these three classes of Jewish leaders made up the Sanhedrin. That council of Jewish elders, about 70 elders or 71, these were the elders appointed by Moses in Numbers chapter 11, verse 16. Moses had appointed the elders over the people, a great number of them, because there was a need for them to have that authority. And even here in the Old Testament... We find the divine prescription for a Presbyterian form of government ruled by elders. 
But note that these were not godly elders in this setting because they were seeking to entrap Jesus. And so the Sadducees and the Pharisees were members of the Sanhedrin. The high priest presided over them. And then there were 24 chief priests plus the high priest who presided over the temple worship. And so these three chief priests, 24 of them, scribes who were the ones who had written the law, the ones who were the experts, the ones who could interpret the law, came upon Jesus along with the elders. And so you can, you can imagine the scene. This is probably not all 70 of the elders, but this is a large group of elders, chief priests, and scribes coming to entrap Jesus. But notice Luke records there in verse 1 that as he was in that mode of teaching, as he was there preaching the gospel, it says, they came upon him. First of all, the, pre- the chief priests and the scribes came upon him along with the elders. The elders were the ones who were called to govern, to make sure that what this man was saying was in accordance with their law. But as they came upon him, the wording there, and Matthew Henry bears this out quite well, this is the only place really in Luke's gospel where he uses the words they came upon him. But there's two things that Matthew Henry brings out in this phrase, came upon him. First of all, it means that they caught him by surprise. Or they caught him suddenly. Perhaps you're talking to someone and all of a sudden someone catches you off guard. This is, this is kind of the thing here. But notice, this was deliberate. This is why this is an entrapment. These are not godly, humble, religious leaders. They're looking for a way to bring Jesus down. And so he's teaching. And they catch him by surprise or suddenly. But you know what? As I was thinking on that this week, I thought, isn't it funny? They thought they were going to catch Jesus by surprise. Guess what? He catches them by surprise. They they didn't know what they were going to encounter. So there's this sudden surprise. But secondly, this idea of coming upon him is to frighten him. Perhaps threaten him. They come up behind him, they... Touch him on the shoulder. Don't ever do that behind my wife. I do that even to this day, and it just unnerves her. Not expecting someone to come up behind her. And Jesus knew full well what was taking place. But they wanted to frighten him. But you know what is most enlightening here? And Matthew Henry doesn't bring this out, but I think this is so clear. There's a form of intimidation There's a form of control that these religious leaders wanted to control Jesus and they couldn't. 
That's what frustrated them. You know what? Let's let's try this. Let's let's try this this maneuver. And so they used, like people do today, control, intimidation, and fear to catch you off guard, to get you to do what they want. And they wanted Jesus to conform to their little system. And so, as Jesus is there, I think what's interesting, and perhaps the question is, why on this occasion where were they so angry? What were they opposing? Because at this point in Jesus' ministry, the, the signs and the wonders and the miracles had pretty much ceased. The apostles, that age had not closed. The apostles would use those same gifts in the book of Acts. But for the life of Jesus coming to the end, we no longer see the record of, of those signs and wonders taking place. So what happened within the temple that caused them to become so angry? Well, when you go back to chapter 19, as he comes in to Jerusalem, you go back to verse... Forty-six, forty-five. He went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold therein and them that bought, saying unto them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer. You have made it a den of thieves. And so two things happened there. Jesus comes in and cleanses the temple that had been defiled. And then after he cleanses the temple that's been defiled, he goes and preaches. And as he's preaching, immediately the scribes and Pharisees seek to destroy him. So the only thing that he did that really caused them to become angry was they... Did not like the fact he went into the temple and began to upset their system. You know, you got to realize, you got to ask yourself, why are these scribes and Pharisees, religious leaders, so concerned about that? Weren't they wanting the temple to be preserved? Weren't they wanting uh, dignity and, and all of that within the temple? And here Jesus brings that to the temple. But what is striking is Jesus, and it's not shown here in Luke's gospel, it's shown in Matthew's gospel, that when he says it is written, words coming from the Old Testament, house of prayer in Isaiah chapter 56, he says, my house is a house of prayer for whom? All nations, Jew and Gentile. And that didn't go well. They didn't like the fact that Jesus was a man who was driven by authority, was driven by power to do the work of God's kingdom. And so, as they come to him, or upon him, to try to trap him or to intimidate him, it does not work. 
we come to the second point, and that is the confrontation. Because immediately, as this occasion arises, Jesus is preaching the gospel. And they come up to him and they ask these two questions. They're not necessarily separate questions, but they're distinguished questions, distinguished from each other. Tell us by what authority doest thou these things? And tell us who has given thee this authority? Now it's interesting because they're asking the Lord Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man, by whose authority he does this? You go to the Gospel of John, and that is the encounter that John records in his Gospel with Jesus. Constantly questioning him over his authority. Who gave you the power to forgive sin? Who, who gave you the power to heal the sick and to cast out demons? Well, Jesus, by the signs that he was given, shows his authority. And here... The confrontation begins because Jesus shows them that as the Son of Man, as the Messiah, He has authority. So by what authority do you come? This is their first attempt to entrap Him, and it fails. And so as they ask that question, Two, engage in two um, entrapping questions. They're not concerned about his authority. They're not concerned about his mission. They're not concerned about his ministry. They're concerned about the fact that Jesus has come to town, and he's created conflict. Oh, how we need to understand that wherever the gospel goes, it creates conflict. Wherever the preaching of the word goes, it creates conflict. And that's what's happening here. The first question really is a question that opposes his mission. By what authority do you do these things? Don't you want to laugh when you see those questions asked? Every other occasion when Jesus performed miracles, where were they? Right there. They weren't off somewhere else doing something else. On every occasion when there's a conflict in the Gospel of Luke, they're right there. He heals a blind man. He calls Zacchaeus to come down from a tree as he's going to stay at his house that day. In every instance where Jesus heals and, and performs miracles as it was testified that the Messiah would do under the Old Testament, they, they still question his authority. And so you have to laugh because why are they still questioning his authority? Haven't they seen by now who he is, what he does? Haven't they seen the prophecies of Isaiah? That the servant of the Lord would come? And would bring good news to the poor? 
proclaim liberty to captives? Declare the acceptable year of the Lord? Didn't they know that? Well, again, these leaders were hypocrites. They knew the law, and yet they only knew it outwardly. They didn't know it in the heart. And so this question of Jesus' authority opens up a series of controversies in verses 1 through 44. And that controversy still continues even to the end. And so the conflict arises out of chapter 19, verse 47. And you can see the parallel accounts in Matthew chapter 21 and Mark chapter 11. They're very similar. And yet as Jesus is confronted by these leaders, you go back to chapter 7 of Luke, and it's a long section. But there in chapter 7, Jesus heals a Gentile servant. He raises a widow, and he shows the character of John the Baptist, who had been put into prison. John's disciples begin to question Jesus in chapter 7, beginning in verse 18. And as you come down to verse 30, 29 and 30, all the people that heard him and the publicans justified God being baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves, being not baptized of John. And so this is important because as Jesus is confronted by them, he asks them two questions. Isn't it ironic that Jesus asks this asked two questions just as they did. He answered and said to them, I will ask you one thing and you answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or was it from men? Two distinct questions but related. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or was it from God? Was the baptism of John of divine origin? Did God ordain For John the Baptist to do what he did. That's the nature of that question. And the second one is, was it for men? And so they begin to reason among themselves. And um, they're disputing. This is quite interesting as they're disputing about this. So you notice there in verse 5, if we say that John's baptism is from God or from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? Literally, verse 5 indicates, if his baptism is from God, then why did you not believe me? Because John, in his ministry, testifies of Christ. Remember that scene there in Gospel of John, chapter 1, Jesus comes, and John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So John came to testify of Christ. 
And his baptism of repentance was to call primarily Jews to conversion. They weren't converted through baptism. They were converted. Baptism was that that sign and seal of their call to conversion. But Jesus submitted to that baptism. Jesus affirms the ministry of John. And that's why Jesus uses the ministry of John to validate his own ministry. I think it's interesting because Jesus could have just simply said, well, God gave me the authority to do it and that's it. But Jesus wants to engage them in this. So Christ turned the question around to expose their own lack of authority. Because their lack of authority arose from their hypocrisy and from their fear of men and not fear of God. I think it's so striking that as we see here in this passage that these religious leaders do not fear God, they fear men. And this is often the case with false teachers. This is often the case with those who do not proclaim the true doctrine, the saving work of Christ. They fear men. They don't fear God. And so in their hypocrisy and in their, their fear of men, they, they were concerned. They were concerned that if they said his baptism comes from heaven or from God, he says, well, then why do you not believe what I do? And then secondly, if we say it comes from man then all of these people in the outer court, all of these Jews who have followed him, all of these who have called him king, all of these who have declared his wondrous works will see us stone him and it will be an absolute riot. You can see the scene. And so they just said, we don't know. That's a nice answer. They could not tell. And here is the wonderful response of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is, a sign, this is a response of judgment and condemnation. Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. End of story. And then we go on to the parable. It's interesting that as Jesus here is being entrapped and as they they seek to to throw him off in essence what they're doing we have to always be careful of this particularly for pastors when when those occasions come when people purposely try to throw you off well pastor what's the answer to this question well they're not asking a question so that they can learn something they're asking a question because they have another motive But they're trying to throw Jesus off. They have no regard for whose authority he has. They don't care where he received his authority. They don't care what he's doing. They're just upset because the people are following him. And so they try to throw him off. And it didn't work because in Jesus' response, he condemns the Jews of his day, because of their blindness, 
because of their uh, rejection. And that's really the heart of this passage here. Even these religious leaders who thought they knew the law, who thought they knew the scriptures, who claimed to be the shepherds of Israel, they rejected the authority of the king and he brought charge of condemnation against them. Neither will I tell you. And some may ask, well, okay, so he doesn't give them an answer. But by not giving them an answer, he is in essence saying, you have heard the law, you've heard the prophets, you've heard time after time of this Messiah who would come, and you've rejected it. And now there's no more opportunity for you. And so it's a striking condemnation by his silence by not answering their question he knows they don't want the answer they just simply want to reject anything that jesus says or does so they receive no answer but jesus in that response shows that their hypocrisy their fear of men did not come from God, that they did not have authority to do what they did. But Jesus, as the new Moses comes, to declare the word of God, to declare as the prophet of Israel, that he is to be their king. And they did not want that. And so, it's a, it's a great passage of scripture. There's, a, there's more in here than, than you often think. But J.C. Ryle, as he often does, has some wonderful short responses to these passages. But he says that too often religious leaders and those who deny the gospel, as we see that in the life of these religious leaders, try to do good things. They try to claim that they follow Christ and he says every true-hearted Christian who tries to do good will be treated just like their master. And he says we must never be surprised to find that the self-righteous and the worldly-minded dislike his ways. Don't be surprised. And you know what? Don't be surprised if the self-righteous and worldly-minded who dislike his ways rise up from within the church. They did in Israel. They called into question his lawfulness. They called into question his, his authority and his power. But J.C. Ryle says that he will be regarded as meddlesome, disorderly, and self-conceited, a pestilent fellow, and a troubler of Israel. Oh, how we need more troublers in Israel today. Men who will stir up people that they might hear the word of God, that they might believe it, that they might trust in Christ. And there's some wonderful instruction in this passage of Scripture for our learning. And the question is this morning, for those sitting here, 
Have you rejected the king's authority? Because that's really the ultimate question here. Oh, well, pastor, I, you know, I do my best. I, I come to church. I, you know, join this church. I've taken vows. But you know what? People take vows all the time. And those mean nothing. People come to church and it goes in one ear and out the other. But here as we learn from the Lord Jesus Christ, the people reject the king's authority because they don't want his rule in their lives. They don't want their lives upset. They don't want their religious life upset. Well, this is the way we've always done things. Why change it now? And Jesus confronts their rejection. And you know what? Jesus confronts our rejection as well. Because we can sit here, and, and the Lord knows each and every one of our hearts, but we can sit here and you think, oh, yeah, people are receiving it. But you know what? People all process things differently. Some people can do two things at once and be totally listening. I can't do two things at once. I have to do one thing at a time. That's just the way I'm wired. And yet sometimes people can reject Christ, not because of outward disobedience, but simply because they don't want their lives changed from the way they've always done things. And that is a sobering thing And that is what Jesus shows here. That to reject his authority is to reject God. But more importantly, as Jesus was preaching the gospel as the true prophet of God, he brings the word of God to us. And he, as the king and lord of the church, he brings us that word every week. He brings us that word whenever we have um, public worship Because public worship should always have preaching. I've been in some good, solid congregations that had what they call homilies. I'm thinking that homily was good, but you should have added about 30 or 40 minutes more onto that. But we live in a day when people don't want to hear the word of God. But Jesus came preaching the gospel because the gospel comes with that promise, with that hope of salvation in Christ. But it also comes with the warning of condemnation. Because if we refuse to hear Christ, if we refuse to hear that word and receive that word, then we are rejecting his authority. The, re- the authority that a pastor has is not the same as the apostles. He has that derivative authority from the apostles but he can't work miracles he can't do the things that Jesus did but he can preach the word and he can call people to repentance because that is what preaching should do is point people to Christ and call them to repentance and the the question this morning is again have you rejected Christ or have you received him Because if you have received him, life can't continue as it is. If you've received him, then you're called to follow him and to do what he says.
Oh yes, when we follow Christ, trouble comes. I've seen it in my own family. When we follow Christ, trouble comes. Co-workers, those we know. And even for some young people here, there may be a hesitation to, to follow Christ. Because if I make that public profession of faith, if I identify with Christ, people are going to think that I'm just a little strange. Or they're not going to like me. And yet Jesus reminds his disciples and he reminds us that in the world we will have tribulation and that if we identify with Christ, we'll have far greater friends than we'll ever find in the world. Because we'll find friends who truly love Christ and who truly follow him. And so as we think upon these words this morning, let us be reminded that the Lord has still, even from old times, ordained the preaching of the gospel for the salvation of sinners. That they might come under the blessing of the Lord Jesus Christ, who indeed is our King and our Shepherd. Let us pray. Lord our God, we do give thee thanks this morning for reminding us of the conflict that rages within this world. Even from the fall of Adam, when we see the conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Lord, we do pray that you would grant unto us as thy people strength to stand. Stand in the hope of the gospel. Stand in that consolation, in that assurance that we have in Christ. That we are redeemed. That we are a holy people and that we have a future home in glory. But we do pray that in this world we would stand firm. Give our young people here a desire to follow Christ. Give them a desire to identify with the people of Christ, not with the people of the world. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you would give us the desire to serve Christ and to recognize him as our only king. Bless this word to the benefit of our souls, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.